Well, um, if you're visiting here today, uh, this is a great time to visit. If you're a regular here today, great time to be here as well, uh, because we're going through this series. Remember these cards? There's some more in the back uh, that talk about uh, some basics of the Christian life. And this is what we're doing. Uh, so it's called Basic. And uh, over six weeks, we're working through six uh, elementary things that everybody should know, whether you're a Christian or whether you're a seeker evaluating Christianity. These are things that everybody should know. And, and this is a list of six things, not that I came up with on my own, but a list of things that shows up in the book of Hebrews, which is what we're working through as a congregation. So if you turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, you'll see this list. It's in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And in the context of the, of the book, the author who wrote this book, he'd already covered this stuff with his congregation. And so he says, we've covered these things, let's move on. But for us, we haven't covered them, so I want to spend some time making sure we understand what they are uh, before we move on to other things. So here's the list in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instructions about washings or baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Right, there's, there's our list. That's what we're taking six weeks uh, to cover. And so far, we've covered two, two of these important basics. Uh, the first one in the list is the elementary doctrine of Christ. That is, who is Jesus and what did he do? This is of fundamental importance. Who is Jesus and what did he do? And we saw as we look at what Scripture says, there's some amazing things uh, that we learn about Jesus. We learn, of course, he was a man, a real man, full human being who lived about 2,000 years ago and walked the earth. But at the same time, he was also fully God. Uh, not half man, half God, but fully man, fully God. And in that role as fully God and fully man, he lived the life that we should have lived. He lived a perfect life uh, of obedience to God. Uh, and then he died the death that we should have died. Because of our sins, we deserve to die, but he died in our place but even stay dead, he rose from the dead and then ascended into heaven where he now continues to work interceding for us. Okay, that's who Jesus is and what he did. That's the elementary doctrine of Christ. Uh, but then the list continues and it says, uh, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. And so last week we talked about this, how to become a Christian. Right? Once we understand the elementary doctrine of Jesus, who he is, what he did, well then we say, well how does that, how do I, how do I get on board with that? And that's the next thing, repentance from sin and faith towards God. Repentance and faith, they're two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Repentance is turning from sin and faith is turning towards God. So we saw last week that in repentance, we've got to turn from our sin. But both the, uh, the gross, uh, uh, visible, obvious things that we would think of as sin, but also from the sin of doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. Turning from the sin of uh, obeying the rules outwardly, trying to earn God's approval through what we do. Both of those are sin, either going your own way to please yourself or going your own way to put God in your debt. And we saw you've got you to repent from that, repent from your self-reliance, and then turn to faith in God, which is more than just a knowledge of God, but an actual trusting in him, submitting your life to him, to follow him, and uh, obey him as Lord. So we have the elementary doctrine of Christ, we have repentance and faith, so what's next in the list? Well, what do you do when you become a Christian? 
you get baptized. And that's the next thing that we see in the list is discussion about baptisms. Now, I gotta say something here because some of you, it's gonna bug you the whole sermon if I don't say this. Because in certain versions, including the one I preach out of, the English Standard Version, it doesn't say the word baptism. Now, some of it does, but in the ESV or the New American Standard, it translates the word as washings. Now, this is not a big deal. It's the same Greek word. And in fact, if you look in your ESV, you'll see a footnote that says, or baptisms. So it's legitimate. Uh, but the word, it just, I mean, it means washing. That's what baptism is. Um, and, and for certain reasons, the translators decided here to translate it as washings, but it seems pretty obvious to me that in a list of basic doctrines of the Christian life that the appropriate translation would be baptism, which is what most translations go with. So that's what we're going to say today. If you want to talk about that more, you can always ask questions. And we do have the Q&A part at the end of the sermon, but that's what we're going to go with today. So we're going to talk about baptisms. So what are we going to do? We're going to look at what it is, what it means, and why we should do it. Okay, what it is, what it means, and why we should do it. So first, let's look at that first question here. And the first question is, what are the baptisms? They might say, wait, that's, don't you mean what is baptism? I said, what are the baptisms? Because actually, if you look at the passage, you see that it's plural. And that's actually very helpful. Uh, because when you survey the New Testament, you don't just see talk of one baptism we see talk of several baptisms. It's plural. And understanding both of them helps us understand uh, what baptism really is. So there's two main baptisms as you survey the New Testament. One of them is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that is receiving the Holy Spirit. And the other one is baptism with water. So we're going to talk about both of those to understand what baptism is. Uh, The first one is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, Now what this is, just very simply... The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a phrase to describe the miracle that happens when you become a Christian. Uh, It's another way of saying it is receiving the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Uh, This is the miracle that happens to every Christian once you repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus. I mean, it's astonishing, but it's what the Bible teaches, uh, that God himself comes to live inside of you. Your own body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is the language used in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit lives within you? Okay? And, and to be baptized in the Holy Spirit is to receive the Holy Spirit, which is what happens to every Christian when you repent of your sins and put your faith in God. It's a miracle. Now, baptism of uh, the, the Holy Spirit, that's the first one, but there's another baptism that's talked about in Scripture, and it's probably the one you were thinking of when I said we're going to talk about baptism today, it's baptism with water. Uh, and baptism with water is that physical act where a person gets in water and we dunk them underwater and they come up and they're literally wet because they've been baptized in water. It's kind of honestly a weird thing that we do as Christians. Uh, when someone becomes a Christian, we, we take them and we put them in water and we stick them under the water and we pull them back out. Why would we do that? Well, we do that because that's what Jesus said to do. In Matthew 28, uh, 18 through 20, Jesus gives the Great Commission. Uh, He says to his disciples, here's the marching orders for the church. I want you to go into all the world. I want you to make more disciples. And I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. 
And that's what the disciples did, right? You read through the book of Acts, you see this happening. In Acts 2, Peter gives the first gospel proclamation to the people, and they respond. They say, what must we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. You keep on reading, and as the encounters happen throughout Acts, this pattern continues. Philip is wandering in the desert. The Lord takes him to the desert. He meets this guy on a chariot, and he shares the gospel with him, this Ethiopian eunuch, Acts chapter 8. And the, and, and the guy believes the gospel, and then he sees some water right by the road, and he says, what's keeping you from being baptized? And he says, nothing, let's go do it. And so they baptize him, and he believes, and he's baptized. Paul goes to Philippi, and he's sharing the gospel with people. This rich woman named Lydia believes the gospel. She's baptized. This jailer in Philippi, he hears the gospel. He says, what must I do? They say, repent and be baptized. It's the pattern that's, that's given by Jesus, that's followed by the apostles, and that's practiced by the early church from the beginning until now. When you believe, you get dunked in water. Now, why would we do this? I mean, besides the fact that Jesus commanded it, I mean, why did he command it? If you've got the Holy Spirit, why do you also need to get wet? Uh, A great example of this is is in Acts chapter 10. Why don't you flip there? And we'll read this little excerpt together. This is where Peter is going out and the Lord has, has basically forced him to go share the gospel with some Gentiles. And Peter is there, and he shares the gospel, and as he's sharing the gospel with these Gentiles, something amazing happens. And here it is in Acts 10, verse 44. It says, while Peter was still saying these things, while he's explaining the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised, that is the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Okay, this, is, this, is, this is fascinating, I think, because here we have these Gentiles. They hear the gospel, they believe, they receive the Holy Spirit. So they got the first baptism, the real deal. They're saved, they got the Holy Spirit living inside them. And you might expect Peter to say, well, since they have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they've got everything they need, so why would we bother to get them wet? But no, he says, who could withhold water from them? Now that they've received the real deal, we know that it's appropriate to give them the water baptism. So what this is telling us is that there's a connection. There's a connection between the two baptisms. And here's the connection. I think you've got this on your outline, so if you want to fill in the blanks, uh, you can write this down if that helps you. Uh, The connection between the two baptisms is this, that water baptism symbolizes outwardly and visibly what happens inwardly and invisibly when you're baptized by the Spirit. That's the connection. The water baptism symbolizes outwardly and visibly what happens inwardly and invisibly when you're baptized by the Spirit. It's a symbol. And and we all know how symbols work. There's a very familiar symbol that does a similar thing. If you look at your cell phone, you can see the symbol that tells you how much uh, reception you have. A little symbol of five bars that that, that shows how much uh, reception you've got. What is that doing? It's showing you outwardly and visibly what is there in, in reality, but invisibly, right? I mean, you, can you see radio waves? Anybody? Can't, you can't see those, right? They're invisible. They're real. They're there. But you don't know they're there until you hold up your cell phone and you see, oh, I've got four bars. 
Now, that symbol, it's not the thing. It's just a symbol. It's showing you what's there visibly. Uh, the reality is the radio waves, but the symbol is the bars. Okay, this is how baptism works. It symbolizes, it shows outwardly, visibly, what's there inwardly and invisibly. Uh, so, so what I want to do, I want to I flesh that out a little bit more. I say, well, what does, it, what does it really symbolize? What does it mean? How does it do that? And there's three big ways, this is on your second point now, there's three big ways that water baptism symbolizes and shows us the reality of what happens with the baptism of the Spirit. So what does water baptism symbolize? First of all, it symbolizes our cleansing from sin. It symbolizes our cleansing from sin. Have any of you ever wondered why it is that we baptize in water and not in motor oil? You ever thought about that? Why why water? Or even, how about this? I mean, we sang some songs today about being washed in the blood of Jesus. Wonderful, wonderful truth. Well, you know, in communion, we symbolize the blood of Jesus with uh, grape juice or wine, right? So why don't we just fill a big vat of grape juice, right? And we, we, why don't we dunk somebody in grape juice uh, instead of water? Wouldn't that be great symbolism of being washed in the blood of Jesus? Well, it, it, yeah, it, it could be, but, but we don't do that. Why not? Why did you just say baptize in water? Uh, it's because water, unlike motor oil or grape juice, uh, when you go down in it, you come up cleaner than when you went down, right? If you go down in motor oil, you come up with oil all over you. You go down in grape juice, you're stained red. Uh, But if you go down in water, you're cleansed. That's what it symbolizes. Water is cleansing. And that's what happens when the Holy Spirit comes into your life. He cleanses you from sin. Um, If you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6, I'm going to show you this is what happens. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. This is a description of what we were before the Holy Spirit came in. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. He says, uh, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Okay, you see? We were dirty. God is pure. We we can't come to him unless our stains are taken off. And the stains that we've got, the sin stains we've got, they are indelible. They they can't be removed by us. We we cannot wash them off. Uh, They're like dry erase marker on clothing. Ever, ever try to get dry erase marker off clothing? Right? I mean, there's all these hints on the internet like how you can get dry erase marker off clothing. They don't work. It doesn't happen. You, you get dry erase marker on your clothes, it's, it's indelible. It's there. It's not coming out. Can you tell we have a dry erase board at our house? Okay, it, and it's, it's, it ruins, it's, it's there. It's a stain. You can't get rid of it. You could, you could wear another shirt over it to cover it up. You could wash the rest of the shirt and make it look clean, but that stain is still there, and that's what our sin is like. Right? We, we could try to cover it up so you can't see my sin. We could try to clean up the rest of our lives, uh, but that stain remains. The sin remains. We can't get rid of it. But what happens when you put your faith in Jesus is that that perfect work of Christ, his perfect life, his atoning death, gets applied to your life by the work of the Holy Spirit. He comes in and he, he washes it out. 
He's the ultimate stain remover. He, he can remove the sin that stains our souls and makes us clean. That's the invisible reality of what happens when you become a Christian. And so God gives us the gift of baptism with water to show outwardly that we are cleansed. Okay, so that's, that's one part of the meaning of baptism. Uh, but there's more. Baptism also symbolizes our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. Okay, so you ever wonder about that? Why, why do we uh, baptize people by taking them underwater and then bringing them out of water? Okay, and in saying that, I recognize not everybody does it that way, but they miss out on the symbolism by not doing that. Uh, why is it that we dunk instead of sprinkle? Because if cleansing is the only point, then you could take a shower just as much as you could take a bath. All right, they both get you clean. Water dumped over the top of you gets you clean just as much as going underwater yourself. But that's not the only thing that God intends to symbolize. There's not just washing going on, there's also a death and a resurrection going on. For this one, I want you to look at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 5, Paul explains some of this imagery of death and resurrection. Romans 6, 1 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, uh, by the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So this is explained a little more. The invisible stuff that happens. You didn't see this happen. It was invisible, but it really happened. When you become a Christian, through repentance and faith in God, what happens is the Holy Spirit unites you to Jesus such that the death he died becomes your death and the resurrection that he experienced becomes your resurrection. Here's how how Galatians 2.20 says it. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. So wait a minute. No, no, you weren't Paul. (laughs) Jesus was crucified in in Jerusalem on that hill in in like 33 AD and and, and you were still alive when you wrote this letter. You weren't crucified with him. He died there. You didn't die. No, Paul says, yes, I did die. And every one of us who put our faith in Jesus did die. The Holy Spirit did that. It was invisible. It was real. When you put your faith in Jesus, you're united to Christ such that his death becomes your death. His substitution, he died on your behalf. We died. The old you died. But you didn't stay dead because the Holy Spirit also united you to Jesus in his resurrection. He, he rose from the dead. He is alive. And what does it say in Romans 6? Is that being united with his death, we are also united in his resurrection. We have the same power in us that raised Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit. So this death and this resurrection is a real thing. It's invisible. We don't see it. So what does God give us to help us to see this, to know that the old us died and the new us rose? What does he give us? He gives us something visible, something tangible, the act of baptism. So that you put someone underwater. And I've, I've taken up swimming lately, and I've realized that part of the symbolism of water and going underwater is that if you stay underwater, you die. 
right? So like, as I'm getting towards the last few laps, as I'm doing my things, I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't want, and I'm underwater, and I get to the wall, and I'm out of the water. I'm like, resurrection. This is wonderful. I'm alive, right? That's part of the symbolism. You go underwater because that kills you. But then you come up to new life. It's an outward symbol of the inward reality. So baptism symbolizes our cleansing from sin. It cleanses our union with Christ and his death and his resurrection. But there's a third thing. It also symbolizes our union with other believers in the church uh, for all time. Not just this church, not just this little C church, Faith Evangelical Free Church, but the big C church. All believers uh, throughout all time and space who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. It symbolizes our union with them. So, when someone's baptized, have you ever noticed the thing that's said at every baptism? It's, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Okay, it doesn't matter who's doing the baptism. It doesn't matter what church is doing the baptism. They all say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because that's what Jesus said in Matthew 28. He said, baptize them in the name of the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you don't hear someone saying, I baptize you in the name of faith evangelical free church. You, know, I don't, you don't say, I baptize you into the United Methodist Church. Uh, you, don't, you don't say, I baptize you in the name of Dan Lehman. Never going to hear that come out of my lips, <laughs> except for just that. Anyway. Okay, you don't, you don't say that. You say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus set it up that way because the point of baptism is not to unite you with one particular stripe of Christianity, but to unite you to every other believer who confesses faith in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? It's a universal symbol. If you flip in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1, you see that this was a problem even in the beginning of the church. See, when the Holy Spirit comes in to your life and baptizes you, he... he he doesn't just save you uh, with one like small other group of Christians. He saves you with every believer everywhere. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's what happens to every Christian of all time. And so baptism is meant to reflect that. But, but we miss that. We miss that, and we, we like to draw our lines, and we like to make our factions. And so in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verses 10 through 17, you've got Paul uh, getting upset about this. Uh, he started a group of believers in, in Corinth, and, and they start dividing up into different groups. And he says it shouldn't be that way. 1 Corinthians 1.10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is each one of you says, well, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied in its power. So you see, the problem here is that there's different factions, right? There's different folks who are saying, well, I'm, you know, I'm a Paul guy, or I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Peter guy, or, or I, I follow Jesus, or I follow uh, Apollos. And, and so they're splitting up into different groups, and Paul says that's not the way it's supposed to be. There is one body, 
You're either Christian or you're not. And to emphasize that, he appeals to two things. The first one we would expect. He appeals to the crucifixion of Jesus. He says there was one crucifixion. There's one Savior, Jesus Christ. He died on the cross. There's, there's only one of those things. So if you're going to believe in Jesus, there's only, there's only one category. Do you believe in Jesus dying on the cross or not? Right? But then the second one's a little more surprising. He appeals to baptism. He says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? No, they weren't. Because you don't baptize people into the name of the person doing the baptism. It's not about who baptized you. It's about into whom are you baptized. Right? So it doesn't matter whether Paul did it or Peter did it or Stephanus did it or any of these other people. It doesn't matter uh, if you're baptized into the United Methodist Church or you're baptized by the Faith Evangelical Free Church. What matters is are you baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That symbolizes the truth that you're not saved into a particular church. You're saved by the Holy Spirit into fellowship with God and to every other person who puts their faith in Jesus. Okay, so the, the invisible reality is that when you become a Christian, you're united to a big family, a big family, much bigger than everybody in this room, bigger than the denominational lines that we like to draw. You're, you're baptized by the Spirit into the family of God. And when you're baptized with water, it symbolizes that you're joining that big family. That's the basics of baptism. It symbolizes what happens inwardly and invisibly when the Spirit comes in. It shows us we're cleansed from sin. It shows us that we're united to Christ. And it shows us that we're a part now of the whole family of God. All right, so the big question then, the money question. Why should I get baptized? This is interesting head knowledge. Now, why should anyone actually get baptized with water? Um, and i got four things here. One is a bad reason, and three, I think, are good reasons. And, and for this, I'm going to talk about my wedding ring a lot. Okay, we've got to understand symbols, and this is the best symbol I've found to explain baptism. Okay. Um, the bad reason why you might get baptized, so why should anyone get baptized with water? Not, not because it's necessary for salvation. Okay, let's, let's hear that. You don't get baptized to get saved. Okay, and, and, and so this is how symbols work, right? Baptism is a symbol. The reality is what the Spirit does in your life. Okay, just like a wedding ring is a symbol, and the marriage is the reality. Okay, so let's think about this. Uh, wedding ring, it's not the actual thing. It's not the marriage. If I, uh, like I said, I've, I've been swimming lately. I like to take off my ring before I go swimming because I don't want to lose it in the pool. So when I take my ring off to go swimming, does that mean that I stop being married while the ring's off? No. And when I put the ring back on, does that mean, oh, okay, I'm married again? No, no, it doesn't. Uh, now, now, if I take someone who is not married and, and they, they, they take a, a ring and they put it on the fourth finger of their left hand, does that make them married? No, right? This, these are easy questions, right? If someone says, well, I'm married. See, I, I put a ring on my left hand, on, on the fourth finger even. You see? I've got the symbol of marriage. That means I must be married. No, it doesn't make you married. In the same way, just being baptized in water doesn't make you a Christian. 
Just because you go underwater and you come back up and you got wet, it does not mean that the reality has happened in your heart and in your life. It's just a symbol. So, so don't get baptized with water because you somehow want to make yourself become a Christian. That's not how it works. You can't put a ring on your finger and make yourself married. You get married and get the ring because of that. So you must repent of your sins. You must be, put your faith in Jesus. When that happens, the Holy Spirit moves into your life, and then, having experienced the reality, you get the symbol. Okay, so that's the, the first reason, the bad reason. Don't do it for salvation. But you know, even saying this, I know, as soon as I say the word symbol, some of you are thinking, well, that means it doesn't matter. Right? If it's just a symbol, if it's not necessary for salvation, well, then that means it doesn't matter. Okay, that's a big problem in our thinking. Because if you think symbols don't matter, okay, try drawing a swastika on your homework right before you turn it in. Do you think, actually, don't try that. But I'm just, I'm, right, symbols matter. Symbols matter. They have meaning. They communicate things. They have power. So don't say, oh, it's just a symbol. It doesn't matter. I don't have to do it. No, it matters. Wedding rings matter. If I take my ring off to go swimming, not a big deal. If I go on a business trip and take my ring off before heading down to the hotel bar, that's a big deal. Symbols matter. So why should we get the symbol? What are good reasons to get the symbol? Well, the first one is that it identifies us with Christ. It identifies us with Christ. So, um, again, you just think about the wedding ring. Uh, what is one of the functions of the wedding ring? It is to identify you as a married person. To tell other people, back off. Right? I'm married, I'm off the market. Um, it's, it's a very clear symbol that identifies you as a married person. Now, you can be married without having a wedding ring. Right? Not everybody does that. That's not a scriptural tradition. You don't have to do it. Okay? But some of the downsides of that is it's harder for people to know that you're married and it's easier for you to hide it. In some ways, this is similar to baptism. Now, baptism is a scriptural command, but if we ignore the symbol, uh, those same things are true. Uh, it's harder for people to know that we're a Christian, and it's easier for us to hide it. Now, you, you can become a Christian in secret, in private. It's an invisible thing. It can happen between you and God in a closet. Nobody sees it. It's still real. But then you can go out from there and you can continue on with your life, never telling anybody that it happened. And it can be easier for you still to pretend like nothing has changed and no one's the wiser because all that happened was something in private. But God gives us the gift of baptism, indeed the command of baptism, to force our hand and say, do you really identify with Christ? In baptism, it's a public outward sign that says something has happened. I am a Christian, I have been filled with the Holy Spirit, and I want to identify with Jesus. Okay, so it's, it's a gift of God to identify us with Christ. That's one reason why we should do it. To publicly show that something has happened inwardly and privately. Another good reason to do it is because it gives us assurance. It gives us assurance. So this is one of the cool things about wedding rings, and I hadn't thought about this much. One of the cool things about wedding rings is they're not primarily a symbol of your commitment to your spouse. They're primarily a symbol of your spouse's commitment to you. 
Okay, think about this. You, 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 you've been to some weddings, right? You, you picture what's going on. Even if you haven't been married, you've, you've seen this, right? The, the, the bride and the groom, they're standing there. And the groom is, is making promises, right? He's making promises to the, to the bride. And he's holding, not his ring, but her ring when he's doing this. He's got her hand. And he makes the promises, and he gives her the ring. And the ring is a sign, not of her commitment to him, right? But of his commitment to her. The gift, the, the sign, is a symbol of, of his promises to her. It's the promise you make to her. So, so when I look at, at this ring, it's not primarily reminding me of the promises I've made to Jen, but of the promises she has made to me. It's a symbol of assurance. Okay? Baptism is a lot like this. You think about this. Baptism, it's not primarily something you do, right? It's even reflected in the way we talk about this, the voice. You, you don't baptize. That's something that I get to do as a pastor. You are baptized, right? Baptism is a passive act. It's something that's done to you. You are baptized, right? Which is a symbol of what happens in, in reality is that when you receive the gift of salvation, it's not something that you do. It's something that God does to you. You don't reach out and take the Holy Spirit. God gives you the Holy Spirit. You receive it by faith. It's a passive act. That's what happens in baptism. You, you are baptized. You are taken under the water. You are brought back up. It's not something you do. It's something that's done to you. You see, this is important. Because if, if you're going through a hard time in your marriage and, and things are bad and you're questioning um, you know, your spouse's love for you, you're, you're wondering, you know, things are just so hard, I can't go on. Part of the function of the wedding ring is that you, you look at it and you're reminded not so much of your commitment to your spouse but of your spouse's commitment to you and you're like, she made promises to me. She's sticking with me. We're going to make it through this and you're strengthened to continue. Okay. In the same way, when you go through your Christian life and things get hard and you, you wonder, am I even a Christian? Does God even love me? Part of the function of your baptism is to give you something objective to look back to and say, I know God loves me because he promised it and it was symbolized in the sign of that covenant. That God began a good work in me and that promise that he made is going to continue until the very end. The baptism is not something that you do for God, like, look, God, I'm pledging my life to you. This symbol that I'm giving, look, I'm, I'm, I'm such a good person. Look how I'm, I'm going to follow you the rest of my life. It's my promise to you. It's not your promise to God. That's not what baptism is. It's God's promise to you. It's the symbol of what he does with the Holy Spirit when he comes into your life and he transforms you and he promises that he's going to see you safely through to the end. But because we can't see that invisible reality, he gives us something tangible, something visible, a marker in the sand that says, God is committed to me, and I know it because I've been baptized. All right, now if none of that works for you, here's the last one, and I think it's the clincher. We should get baptized with water because Jesus commands it. If all that doesn't move yet, let's just go with straight obedience. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 28, Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And part of that command is to go and make disciples and to baptize them. And so we are in that line. The command is for us. If you're, if you're a Christian, 
but you've not yet been baptized, don't write it off and say it's just a symbol. It's a symbol, but it's a powerful symbol. So if you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized, then you are disobeying a direct command of God. The application today, therefore, is very easy. If you're not a Christian, you need to repent of your sin, put your faith in Jesus, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then get the sign of that gift by being baptized. If you are a Christian who has not been baptized, then you need to get the sign of baptism and obedience to Jesus that matches up with the reality of what's happened in your heart. And if you are a baptized Christian, then remember your baptism. Take joy in the symbol that God has given you of all the riches that became yours when the Holy Spirit moved in. Let's pray. Uh, Father, it is a wonderful gift, the gift primarily of receiving the Holy Spirit, that we are not here on our own, but that you have come into our lives and you have washed us clean. You have killed the old me and given a new me life and power. And you have made us all a part of a worldwide body of believers who have put their faith in you. Thank you for this gift. Thank you for the reminder of the reality of what has happened in our lives and the promise that you'll be faithful to see us through to the end. Oh Lord, we rest in you this morning. We rejoice in the gift of the baptism of the Spirit and the gift of a physical sign to help weak physical creatures like us understand what has happened in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name.